Hey, Dylan here, host of Future Perfect. On today's pod, what if governments had a lot more capacity to spend on things like the green energy transition than they often claim? Stephen Hale talks modern monetary theory and a new film on the topic currently touring Australia. Also, new research on whether our willingness to believe in conspiracy theories changes over time. Guardian Australia's Benita Kolovos previews the upcoming federal by-election in Dunkley. And lastly, folk superstar Leah Senior phones in from the coast, ahead of her show at the Lawn Theatre for the Long Hot Summer Festival. Thanks for listening and enjoy. As Australians, we're used to being told that the federal government has a limited capacity to spend on things like income support or the green energy transition. There's a reluctance to talk openly about increasing budget deficits, and governments love to promote their capacity to deliver a surplus, as was the case when Labor handed down its federal budget last year. But what if governments actually have much more capacity to spend than we think? And what if budget deficits aren't actually such a bad thing? These are some of the ideas underpinning modern monetary theory. It's the topic of a new film called Finding the Money, screening as part of the Sustainable Living Festival in Melbourne and elsewhere across Australia as well. To tell us more, I'm joined by Associate Professor Stephen Hale from Torrens University. He's also with Modern Money Lab, which offers courses in modern monetary theory, among other things. Stephen, thanks for coming on Triple R. It's a pleasure, Dylan. So what, in your view, is the problem with the way we tend to talk about government spending and budget deficits? Uh, We tend to talk about government spending as though the government has the same sort of budgetary restrictions that you and I do. Um, And uh, that handicaps us when it comes to um, discussing policy options to deal with, well, basically all the um, major challenges that we face across this century, uh, including but not limited to climate change. And in that context, I mean, we often hear about, you know, budget deficits being used as a, you know, a political football in a lot of cases as well. I mean, are budget deficits a a bad thing or something we should worry about? Well, it's just as well that they're not a bad thing because the Australian government has been in deficit almost the whole time since Federation. The same thing is true in the US. Uh, The reason people get confused over this issue is because they don't understand the difference between currency users like you and me, we have to go and find dollars before we can spend them. We have to earn them or borrow them. And if we borrow them now, we have to pay them back later. And the currency issuer, which is the federal government. So every time the federal government spends a dollar and they spend a couple of billion dollars at least every day, it's a new dollar. Every dollar of federal spending adds to every measure of the money supply in Australia. So the government doesn't go and need to find, doesn't need to go and find dollars before it spends them. It's actually um, the other way around. The government spends dollars into existence. And then what federal taxes do is they don't raise money for the government to spend. Instead, they delete some of the dollars that the government has previously spent into the system. And the normal thing for a currency issuer is to run a deficit. And indeed, for the rest of us to run a surplus, for you and I to be able to net save, it's essential for the government to run deficits over time, which is why they usually do. And which is why in the past, when when surpluses have been run um, by Paul Keating at the end of the 1980s or by um, John Howard and Peter Costello in the early 2000s, it's either driven the private sector into debt. That's when we accumulated all that household debt in the early 2000s. Or it's pushed the economy into a deep recession, which is what happened to Keating. 
And, I mean, in the documentary that we're going to be speaking about in a moment, Finding the Money, there's the point made that kind of builds on, on the point you just made that, you know, often we think about a budget deficit as being a bad thing, but that actually means that the non-government sort of sector or, or us out in society are in surplus. So it's a kind of reframing, I suppose, of uh, the capacity for us to, to, to sort of access money and spend it and build things in this country as well. Why has it sort of taken hold that, that deficits are something that we really should be worried about? Um, economists have always uh, uh, ignored aspects of the monetary system or, or at least had a, a very old-fashioned, outdated view of how the monetary system works. And that's basically what the movie is about and what I spent my life really campaigning for, which is, yes, to reframe the way we think about the role of the federal government in the economy to take into account how a modern monetary system works. And there are a variety of ways of explaining what you just what you just mentioned, but one simple way is to say that for every borrower in our monetary system, there has to be a, a lender. Another way of saying that is that for every, uh, for every deficit, there has to be a surplus. And ignoring the rest of the world for the moment, or uh, assuming at least that Australia isn't going to have persistently huge trade surpluses in the future, that means if the private sector is going to run surpluses, if we're going to net save, if we're going to have strong balance sheets, if we're not going to see uh, uh, household debt continuing to rise and an increasingly fragile financial system, we're going to have to uh, have uh, government deficits. Either there'll be good government deficits that support the economy and help us uh, transition to uh, uh, a zero carbon emissions economy in the future, or there'll be bad ones, which are the result of messing everything up and pushing the economy into a recession so that people lose their jobs and then the government's forced to run a deficit because they don't have the tax receipts and they end up uh, spending a lot on, on job seeking. Yeah, and I mean, that's a really important point, isn't it, that, that there are sort of good and bad budget deficits and the reason for doing so can play into a sustainable or better functioning economy, but in some cases it can, you know, add to inflation and make life a lot more difficult for a lot of us. But I mean, I suppose for those who don't have a degree in economics, a lot of this can be pretty difficult to wrap your head around. I wonder if you can bring it down to sort of practicalities. Why is it that reframing our understanding of, of economics and the monetary system is important, especially when it comes to things like the clean energy transition, which I know is a major focus for you? Yeah, well, let's, let's do that in, in two brief stages. First of all, let's go back into the past and, and look at Australia between about 2008 and the pandemic. For most of that time, we had high levels of unemployment and underemployment and insecure employment. And for much of the time, the last four years uh, before the pandemic, the inflation rate was below the Reserve Bank's target range the whole time, despite the fact the RBA was rapidly cutting interest rates towards zero. So we didn't have a problem with inflation. We didn't have a problem with a lack of productive capacity in the economy. The problem that we had was that productive capacity was not being used. There's an incredible uh, waste of potential think what we could have done. We could have invested more in public services, in infrastructure. We could have transitioned more quickly towards uh, renewable energy, and we didn't. And the reason we didn't was that both sides of politics had this irrational fixation on trying to run something that Australian governments have hardly ever run anyway, which is a budget surplus, because they're trapped in this view of the government budget as though the government is like a household 
which uh, it isn't. The government issues the currency. You and I don't. They're in a completely different position to us. And actually, the Australian government has a very privileged view compared position compared to most other governments around the world too, because our currency is floating. They don't guarantee to convert our currency into anything that they could possibly run out of. We're not on a gold standard. We're not fixed to the US dollar or anything like that. The government has no foreign currency denominated debt either. What that means is the government faces real constraints on what it can spend. So um, it's limited in its spending by the supply of labor and skills and materials and uh, capital equipment and technology and institutional capacity, but it, it faces no purely financial restrictions. So yes, when you're close to full employment and when inflation is, a, is a, a serious threat, then you do need to be very careful how you budget and how much you spend. But much of the time for the last 20 years, that hasn't been true of Australia. And we've just missed a series of opportunities down the years as a consequence of getting this wrong. And we think in the future, it's very important to get it right. Speaking with Associate Professor Stephen Hale, he's with Torrance University and also Modern Money Lab, talking all about modern monetary theory. And this is coinciding with the release of a documentary called Finding the Money, which is screening around Melbourne and elsewhere as well. I wonder if you can just dig into that a little bit more, because some of the the criticisms of modern monetary theory say that, you know, we can't just spend in a totally unrestrained way. That's going to add to inflation. We know that can happen in certain contexts when governments just go and uh, print money. But this is where there's a real importance, I suppose, to match that spending with the productive capacity that's out there in society. I wonder if you can speak to that. Absolutely. And economists are quite capable of doing that, of identifying the degree of excess capacity in the economy. And that's what we should be focusing on. MMT does not remove the limits on spending. Instead, what MMT says is the limits on spending are not whether the government at the moment happens to be running a surplus or a deficit or how big that deficit is. The deficit could be too big. It could be driving inflation. It's also important what the government spends on. Um, certain types of government investments are going to be very helpful when it comes to restraining inflation in the future, getting ourselves off fossil fuels, having a, a, a better mass transportation system. So we have to um, drive less, but having a, a better insulated homes, all those kind of uh, all those kind of things and investing in the skills that we're going to need in the future to have a, a productive economy. So we don't say there are no limits to spending. But we say it is inflation risk. It is the real productive capacity of the economy that sets um, what those limits are. And the biggest mistake in recent years, as far as policymaking is concerned in Australia, was one that was started by the Rudd-Gillard government and then taken on big time by Tony Abbott and everyone that followed him, which is to, um, after the global financial crisis, to try to force the Australian government budget back into the surplus that Howard and Costello were running when we had lots of spare capacity in the system. As far as inflation is concerned, the important thing is to identify what is causing the inflation as well so that you can address it. Um, almost all central banks around the world have published research saying that at least 80% of what drove inflation up in the last few years was the pandemic and supply chain issues related to the pandemic, which were temporary, and then the war between Russia and Ukraine and what's that, what that's done to food and energy prices 
and also to an extent climate change as well, which has had a, an impact on agricultural productivity in some parts of the world too. Those are the kinds of issues that we need to address if we want to manage inflation. Imagining that the Reserve Bank is able to do deal with all that by nudging interest rates up or down, or imagining that the main driving factor as far as inflation is concerned is to do with a, 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 a small increase or decrease in the Australian government budget deficit is to get the causes of inflation wrong. And, I mean, you're one of a number of economists around the world who have been spruiking the benefits of reframing our understanding of the way that monetary systems and economies work. And as you mentioned, Australia is in quite a unique position in this regard to, um, I suppose, bring some of those ideas underpinning modern monetary theory into practice. The United States is another example as well. The, the US is the focus of this documentary I mentioned called Finding the Money. Can you sort of talk a little bit about that doco and how it plays into, I suppose, your desire to continue talking about this and injecting it into the public discourse? Understanding the significance of currency issuance is something that a, a fund manager called Warren Mosler was probably the first person to do about 30 years ago. So modern monetary theory is about 30 years old. And then when uh, MMT originally, as we call it, originally developed, there was one major contributor in Australia, a gentleman called Bill Mitchell, but the others were um, almost entirely either Americans or um, uh, uh, Europeans or African economists who were resident in the US. So the focus has been on the US also partly because that's where we've got furthest. We've been very influential in uh, uh, Biden's Inflation Reduction Act in the US. Joseph Biden has not put the same emphasis that, for example, Jim Chalmers would put on trying to run a budget surplus. He hasn't, uh, he doesn't talk about modern monetary theory. His advisors don't really understand MMT, but at least we persuaded them to take their focus away from trying to run surpluses and they've been prepared to make investments in, in, in accelerating uh, transition towards decarbonisation, at least in, in some ways. The most influential MMT economist has been Stephanie Kelton, who in 2020 published a book called The Deficit Myth, which I recommend people to look up, which is, I think, the world's best-selling economics book of recent years. And Stephanie was with us uh, in 2020, just before the pandemic, when she was Bernie Sanders' uh, chief economic advisor during that presidential campaign. Uh, and she's back again now, or she's coming back anyway, next week for this movie tour. The movie follows Stephanie around. It also talks to Warren Mosler, who I mentioned before, and a series of other economists who have played a major part in taking modern monetary theory from what was 20 to 30 years ago, maybe 10 or 20 economists, to the point where there are now tens of thousands of us around the world. And we really are seriously challenging what has been the dominant narrative for economic policy for most of the last century, um, and so much so that we've moved past the point where the mainstream ignores us, We've even moved past the point where most of them mock us to the point where uh, actually we're, we're facing a lot of anger now from people who don't want this issue discussed. They really don't want ordinary people to understand how the monetary system works because once you understand how the monetary system works, you know that when the federal government says to you they can't find the money to do something, that's not right. It's a political decision they're taking. They are the currency issuer. They will never run out of the Australian dollar. Uh, they may not be able to find the real resources, the people with the skills, the equipment, 
the technology, but they can always find the money. And, I mean, I'm going to be talking to a researcher about conspiracy theories next. And, I mean, part of my mind goes to why there might be such strong resistance to these ideas in some quarters. I'm sure, you know, many economists have legitimate criticisms and that's fine. But is there a sense that if you follow through with some of these ideas, it means there is a a much greater role for federal governments and therefore a lesser reliance on the private sector? And there could be people who, you know, stand to lose money if these ideas really do take hold. Some of these ideas are much older than, than Warren Mosler. And there is a video from the 1970s of a very famous Nobel Prize-winning economist called Paul Samuelson basically explaining that the US government could never run out of dollars, but that it's dangerous for people to realise that. Um, uh, in, in the case of... There's, there's no conspiracy, I think, going on here. Uh, orthodox economics, in one form or another, is at least 150 years old. And it was founded 150 years ago on a story that uh, um, we used to live uh, in ancient times under a system of barter. And then people started to use gold and silver as money. Money emerged in the private sector. And later on, the government came along and messed everything up. So what we want is small government, less government, freeing up the market. And it turns out, as the movie explains, that that never happened, not once not in human history, not anywhere in the world. We know that from archaeologists and anthropologists, uh, although many economists don't realise that because that story you still find in introductory economics textbooks. And the truth is that governments invented Early governmental institutions invented money as a way of organising real resources to um, carry out the tasks that they wanted to be carried out. And we have 5,000 years of history of, uh, uh, of monetary systems being introduced. Uh, just quickly, imagine the British Empire in the 19th century uh, um, taking over another African community uh, uh, um, and um, wanting people to work for them, to build roads, to grow food, etc., and not wanting to enslave everybody. How do you do that? You get people to work for Queen Victoria's money. And um, why do these people want Queen Victoria's money? Well, you tell them that they have to pay a tax or you're going to lock them in prison. Now they have to get Queen Victoria's money because that's the only way they can pay the tax. Then you spend that money into circulation. Some of it you tax back later. The rest, well, it's a deficit for you. It's a surplus for them. They start to save that money and markets start to develop. Governments invented money. Markets followed money, not the other way around. That is incontrovertibly the history of money, greatly oversimplified around the world. And in some parts of the world, we know that's the story, going back 5,000 years old. And the film... Yeah, sorry, sorry to jump in. I was just going to say the film does a really terrific job of telling that story in a really concise yeah. way, I, I must say, as well. There are some screenings happening, including in Melbourne, coming up on Wednesday, February 28th at State Library Victoria. I believe the Trades Hall screening is sold out, but also coming up at State Library on the 9th of March. Uh, Stephanie Kelton, who you mentioned and sort of stars in the film, I guess, is in conversation at um, SLV2. How can people find information about the scre- screenings and, and get tickets to head along? Uh, on the Modern Money Lab site, so modernmoneylab.org.au, uh, um, there is a film tour um, uh, tab there which has uh, links to uh, all the all the events. We have events in Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney, Canberra, Brisbane, Bangalore uh, Film Festival and the Huon Valley 
on Tasmania as well. You're going we all over. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, we may yet organise another screening in Melbourne because of the demand. Uh, it's great that there's so much demand, and uh, I, it's a fantastic movie. I've seen it, I'm going to see it 20 times. <laughs> it, will blow, it will blow your mind, and it will be one of the most important documentaries you ever see if you get along to it. So I would urge people to come along. It's not available uh, on on the net yet, and I don't think it will be for some time because we're using this movie to shift the conversation in Australia and around the world and the strategy of building an audience and and, and getting that influence is, is one that requires us to show it in theatres around the place for a while first. Yeah, and as a regular punter, it can be difficult to wrap your head around this stuff, but we're all implicated in these systems as well. We all use and need money, so really important film and, and I've got to say a really entertaining and interesting one as well. Thanks so much for joining us on Triple R this morning, Stephen. All the best. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure. Triple R. It feels like we live in an age of conspiracy theories. Once considered fun thought experiments, we've seen how a belief in things like QAnon or nefarious plots around COVID-19 vaccines can lead people to, in some cases, do quite extreme things. But just to what extent are we susceptible to adopting conspiracy beliefs and how quickly can people go from being a non-believer to a believer? Dr. Matthew Marks is a senior lecturer in psychology at La Trobe University. He's part of a research team who recently looked at this and he joins me now on the line. Hey, Matthew, great to have you on the show. Thanks, Helen. Good morning. So let's start with the basics. What is a conspiracy theory? So typically we're talking about an explanation of an event that's of public significance that um, is said to have been alleged uh, by uh, multiple people to be involved in a plot some malevolent plot against the public. So, you know, things like when we think about uh, corporations or governments or shadowy figures, uh, puppeteers who are pulling the strings that are making things worse for people in society. Do they necessarily have to be false to be considered a conspiracy theory? Oh, it's a huge debate in the literature. I think... On one hand, we have evidence of conspiracies or conspiracy theories occurring. You know, we can think back to Watergate, um, you know, uncovering, um, you know, Richard Nixon, uh, you know, orchestrating perhaps uh, some men to break into the Watergate Hotel and the um, Democratic, prior to the Democratic um, uh, Republic, uh, Democratic Convention, sorry. Or we have, you know, other things like uh, MKUltra, where the CIA was engaging in mind control uh, programs to try to kind of control um, people. So there are kind of evidence of conspiracies that do end up occurring, but generally we're just talking about any explanation about an event. And it usually has to be a significant event, usually a large-scale event, so maybe the disappearance of an airplane. We're coming up to about 10 years of the Malaysian Airlines disappearance, or it could be around 9-11, or the death of Princess Diana. People typically create these narratives to explain large significant events that occur during society. And as you just alluded to, I mean, conspiracy theories have been around for a long time about a whole bunch of things, but it feels like over the past few years they've been in abundance online. Of course, you know, there are a lot circulating around the COVID-19 pandemic. Are we living in an era where there are sort of more conspiracy theories that are taking hold than has been the case in the past? 
I think that's an excellent question and maybe one that's kind of slightly hard to give a definitive answer. Mm. On the one hand, we could be thinking that we're living through an age where conspiracy theories are much more common. Certainly uh, during the COVID pandemic and even now, we hear lots about uh, vaccines or about microchips or 5G and those sorts of things and its involvement with the spread of COVID, um, all things that there's no kind of available evidence to support those theories. Um, but on the other hand, it may be just that we're more uh, able to see these things. So people are posting on social media, people are, um, you know, kind of expressing these beliefs or, or talking about them. And, and so maybe it's just that these things we're, we're able to see into the looking glass much more than perhaps, you know, 20, 30 years ago where people might have to be congregating or, or be on bulletin boards or, you know, meeting up in person to discuss these things. Yeah, and I mean, I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, that this research we're talking about today was specifically looking at uh, sort of individuals and the extent to which their belief in conspiracies might change over time. So not so much about the spread of conspiracy theories between individuals, but within individuals themselves. Can you sort of talk to that research and, and why it's worth investigating? Sure. So um, during the pandemic, during March to September of 2021, over a six-month period, um, every month um, we had a sample of Australian New Zealanders um, answering a, a set of conspiracy theories that um, we kind of looked up and thought were notable, things like, you know, that there was a... Um, the collapse of World Trade Centre on September 11 was called by controlled demolitions or even things around, you know, COVID being a biological weapon intentionally created and released by China, things that were kind of current then. And what we were interested to see is whether, sort of how stable were these beliefs in, in these people over time and whether or not people could change their belief. So what we often know from research is at a single snapshot, maybe the average level of endorsement or belief, but we don't really know a lot about the dynamics and whether or not people fall into or fall out of believing in conspiracy theories because we often hear this kind of notion that, you know, all of a sudden people are into this rabbit hole and have gone down mm. the rabbit hole of conspiracy theories, but is that really the case? And so that's something that we set out to look at. You suggest a, a rabbit burrow is maybe a better analogy. Yeah, a rabbit burrow, maybe a rabbit warren, rabbit something warren, that's a yeah. lot more shallow. Yeah, so the, so that kind of idea that, um, you know, over this six-month period, you know, for example, we might see at any one time like about 10% of people endorsing this idea that, you know, 5G is responsible for... Um, you know, ill health um, effects in the population and it's being covered up. So maybe 10% of that, you know, one in 10 uh, people kind of endorse that. But there's really a smaller proportion that just consistently do that every single time point. You know, it's, it's like less than 4%. And so in our sample, you, you generally find, which is typical in most samples, that most people don't believe in these explanations for what's going on. It's very small percentage, but there's also a, a kind of a percentage of people who are very fixed in their beliefs, in, in believing them at every single time point, but there's this interesting group of people that fluctuate. People start off believing in the conspiracy theory and then six months later not believing it and, and vice versa. Some people start believing in the conspiracy theory throughout the study. And so what we find is that that's an interesting kind of effect, suggesting that it's a very slow kind of movement. Uh, and, and for most people, it doesn't really happen. 
Yeah, that's interesting. And, and I mean, I sort of was thinking when you were talking about Rabbit Hole, there was a New York Times podcast. I'm not sure whether you listened to it a, a few years ago, which, um, you know, that, that was the name of it, basically. And it was a really sort of interesting exploration of how people were sort of radicalized through consuming a whole lot of, you know, YouTube videos and the algorithm was you know, sending them further and further to a particular extreme. Sometimes as well, I think there can be, uh, you know, blaming media or blaming the internet can be too much of a, a sort of simple solution. Do you much have much of a sense of, of what kinds of factors are at play in determining whether someone does become more fixated on a particular conspiracy theory belief and whether, you know, their sort of social circle plays a role as well? Yeah, so it's an excellent question, and I haven't heard that specific podcast, but that's yeah often something that we hear about people going into rabbit holes and being radicalised, and, and that certainly can be true, um, and, um, you know, we're learning more and more about that. It, it certainly can be the case that some people that may be predisposed um, to believe in conspiracy theories or to have a conspiracy mindset. We know things like, um, you know, motivations or, or, or lack of you know, um, feeling a, a sense of environment or feeling anxious. These are sorts of things associated with belief in conspiracy theories. You know, so being isolated during the pandemic, many people might have felt like that. And so, you know, looking at a conspiracy theory as a, as a way to explain their conditions, feeling powerlessness, um, you know, we also know there are kind of more uh, perhaps serious um, uh, factors that are associated with a tippy, um, paranoia, those sorts of things are associated with belief. I guess our, our typical um, approach, though, is, you know, these are, you know, factors that um, make some people more susceptible. There's, there's not evidence that there's sort of a mass effect across the population. Uh, but for these people who are more susceptible, it's, it's probably, you know, other factors in addition to conspiracy theories that are really driving this, this kind of belief. And so... Other research also shows that, you know, conspiracy theories really aren't on the rise per se, but rather that people fall in and out of different beliefs over time uh, and that at any one time there might be a popular kind of explanation of what's going on, if it's about, you know, Princess Diana or 9-11 or COVID. Um, but it's also possible that the situation, the, the external circumstances in society that are causing that, you know, being locked down, maybe mm -hmm. people losing their jobs, feeling isolated and so forth, are kind of pushing people, you know, to some people to, to kind of believe these things. Um, so it's, 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 you know, a part of people kind of understanding and gaining certainty in their environment, you know, restoring a sense of control or feeling like they're doing that and maybe in, in some ways, as you suggested, to reaching out to other people who believe the same thing so that they that themselves feel like they're belonging to a group. Yeah, I'm speaking with Dr. Matthew Marks, Senior Lecturer in Psychology at La Trobe University, all about his research into conspiracy theory beliefs and uh, the extent to which they change over time among individuals or within individuals, I should say. And it's kind of interesting. I, I understand one of the, the sort of test cases in your study was about whether Big Pharma was suppressing a cure for cancer in order to increase their profits. And uh, I mean, sometimes it's sort of interesting with conspiracy theories, there might be sort of a kernel of truth in them or good reasons for being suspicious of, you know, the extent to which large pharmaceutical companies might be profiteering, but you then need to leap, you take quite a leap to then believe that, you know, there is a, a very direct conspiracy going on with the suppression 
discussion of, um, you know, cures for cancer and, and that kind of thing as well. So I wonder if you can sort of expand on just what you were talking about there in terms of, um, you know, people's likeliness to, to believe in these theories and how we sort of speak to each other. I mean, if someone is becoming much more transfixed on a particular conspiracy theory, how important is it that we sort of engage with those friends, colleagues and, and family members in the right way without deriding them as, you know, crazy or wacko or something like that? Yeah, and I think that's um, fundamentally the, the right thing to do. So if, if it is somebody that, um, you know, is important to you or someone in your family and, and you know, um, you know, you should be talking to because, uh, you know, maybe you get a sense that these beliefs are causing them harm or, or maybe um, they're, you know, affecting their decision-making in some way or you think it's making them unsafe, then I think it is perhaps upon uh, you to talk to them or, or to get them health and those sorts of things. So um, we've written about this as well in uh, a paper we had in the Medical Journal of Australia around uh, vaccination-related conspiracy theories. And, and you're right, in a sense, a big farmer and, and there are certain corporations where there are kind of known tropes, you know, these ideas that corporations are kind of doing things for reasons other than what they're telling you. And so... You know, the propensity to believe that I think is not that far fetched because there are there is evidence of conspiracies that have occurred in we we would really suggest, you know, start off any conversation rather than trying to refute, you know, somebody's beliefs. Um, you know, it might be sort of akin you couldn't really convince somebody to believe that your football team is the best. And in the same way like a conspiracy theory belief, simply kind of telling people that they're wrong is probably the wrong approach. Start off being open-minded, really trying to understand and, and be receptive to that person. Try to really get a sense of why they believe that. We think that's a good approach. You might find that they, you know, they've lost their job or, or they feel quite anxious about something or maybe they're, they're isolated, they've lost their, their social network um, of friends and, and going you know, down this quote-unquote rabbit hole or rabbit warren mm. in a way for them to make connections with other people. And so we think it's it's through these kind of underlying motivations that it, it might be a valuable way to kind of address uh, people's conspiracy beliefs by thinking about the, the motivations or the functions that they serve, right? So while some people are kind of into conspiracy in terms of, you know, thinking about things and, and seeking out information and, and finding critical thinkers, you know, somebody like that, then you could look at information with them and, and maybe look at other sources. You, you could uh, perhaps talk to them about how normative, that is how common they are in society. These beliefs really aren't all that common. Um, so, you know, believing that, you know, vaccinations uh, cause harm and, and this information is being kept secret, really most people don't believe that. So it's, it's really kind of atypical. Um, but people might get that sense if they're kind of engaging with groups where, where this is kind of the false consensus. And then I think perhaps the final point is just really, I think, because most conspiracy theories really are trying to restore a sense of control for people in their lives, whether it be about their personal situation or, or what's going on in the world and, and they feel like things are kind of chaotic, is, is trying to get people to think about some aspect of their lives where they can enact control. You know, maybe they can do, um, you know, things that, um, you know, they have some agency or, yeah. or think about aspects where they're kind of more independent and, they're, they're, and they can focus on those aspects. And, and through that, you know, and, and I think there's some evidence of this, you know, over the pandemic where there would have been times where most of us were 
you know, um, you know, at least here in Melbourne, um, you know, under lockdown or, you know, mandated to do certain things, we, we didn't have a lot of control over our lives. And so conspiracy theories would have been quite appealing as explanations for, for what was happening in our lives. You would find that many of those people after those um, that situation is resolved wouldn't necessarily resort to believing in conspiracy theories because they no, no longer serve that functional purpose. Mm. So it, it's really about treating people with respect and being open-minded and, and listening and trying to find out why they believe rather than trying to correct their belief um, as being wrong. Really interesting and important research. And, I mean, I'm going to keep trying to convince people that Collingwood is the best football team. That's an undisputed fact, but um, <laughs> we'll see how I go with that. It's exactly, been, that's right. <laughs> it's been great having you on the show, Matthew. Um, really appreciate your time and hope to chat again in the future. My pleasure. Thanks, Dylan. Triple R. It's by-election time this Saturday in the federal electorate of Dunkley. Voters in the southern metro region of Melbourne will go to the polls to decide who will replace Labor MP Peter Murphy, who very sadly died from cancer late last year. And as is often the case with by-elections, it's being touted as a test of the government's performance. Benita Kolovos is Guardian Australia's Victorian estate correspondent. She's been hanging out in that part of the world and joins me now on the line. Hey, Benita, great to have you on the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So what was the vibe of uh, people down there on the streets of Frankston? Well, it was really interesting. I went at lunchtime thinking, because obviously early voting's been open now, this will be the second week of early voting, and I went last week thinking maybe lunchtime would be a sort of rush as people were on their lunch break, you know, quickly went to go vote. But it was pretty quiet. It was a quiet start to the by-election. I don't know if that's because people might not know that it's happening yet or it has been a bit of a slow start. I think the Liberals launched their campaign only a week ago. So maybe in the next couple of days it will start to ramp up. But, yeah, I was very surprised. I got there thinking I'd have an easy job of getting some people's thoughts, but it took me the rest of the afternoon to get a handful. Fascinating. And what about, I mean, are there signs and and pamphlets and billboards and the like there or or not so much? Not to the same extent. I also covered Aston the other by-election when Alan Tudge resigned. Um, When would that have been? Middle of last year. Um, And that was, you know, there were call flutes everywhere. So this time round, I haven't seen a lot. I did see a couple of billboards with the Liberal candidate Nathan Conroy on them. But what I thought was more interesting was Advance Australia, which is like a um, lobby type of group. They have a lot of ads. Um, so they had these trucks rolling around with sort of these attack ads um, that Anthony Albanese, the Prime Minister. Um, but in terms of like the candidates themselves, not a lot on the ground, and that could be timing. You know, we're hearing a lot about the next federal election. Mm. They might be wanting to save save their money a little bit, um, but also, too, again, it might just be that it's been a slow start to this campaign, and why would you put all the resources into it until that sort of final week that people have to go and vote? And that's right, and it might not be top of mind for people. I mean, we know that it's often the case with by-elections that those who live in certain electorates maybe aren't even aware that, you know, they're happening and that kind of thing as well. Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit more about the electorate of Dunkley. What do we know about it? It's a really interesting seat, actually. When I first thought about it, I was like, okay, it's Frankston. I think I know Frankston. Um, but it's obviously bigger than just one suburb. People in Melbourne are probably familiar with the Frankston area. It's a bit more working class. 
Um, you've got the CBD, um, but there's also other parts too. You've got Mount Eliza, which is in the south of the electorate, and that's quite a wealthy area. Like homes along the beach there will go easily for three million and above. Then you've got on the north side of the electorate, um, kind of more mortgage belt areas like Caram Downs and Sandhurst is sort of blowing up with lots of new house and land packages. Um, then you've got Frankston North and then Lang Warren, which has kind of still got a little bit of like agriculture and the like. Mm. So it is a pretty diverse seat. It is, but when it comes to diverse, I'm talking not about diversity. It's actually quite um, homogenous of an electorate. Um, I think most people are born, yeah, 75% are born in Australia. Um, it is a bit on the older side. And another really interesting stat is it's one of the least religious electorates in the country. It's interesting. And I mean, I'm actually from that part of the world, so I, I know yeah. it really well. And, and that all rings true based on my experience <laughs> growing up. Um, is religion an, an important thing in terms of uh, being able to, you know, um, predict which way people might vote? To be honest, when I first saw it, I didn't think no religion would be a, a key, I guess, voting indicator. But when I spoke to Tony Barry, he's a former, former Liberal staffer who's now a political consultant, and he was saying that that is huge. Um, he says it's the fastest-growing cohort that's supporting centre-left candidates or lucky teals, um, and now it's like a lead indicator of voting intention. Whereas I used to think, like, okay, certain religious groups might necessarily vote for Labor or Liberal, but I never really paid attention to the no-religious group, but mm. he says it's one to watch. That's interesting. And so when you did eventually find some people to talk to, <laughs> what, what did you learn? Oh, God. It, it's, um, <laughs> you get a lot of characters doing this thing, and I think from um, the start I should probably say it's never going to be, like, the most accurate sort of polling of a seat. Yep. When people come up to you to talk about politics, usually they're pretty passionate for either side because um, they're comfortable enough to, to spruce the party that they're voting for. Um, so, you know, bear in mind all of that. They're, I guess the one thing I thought was really interesting was obviously cost of living is a huge, huge issue. In the seat, um, everyone was talking, and I think it's a huge issue everywhere in the yeah. country at the moment. Everyone was talking about their bills going up, um, their rents, their mortgages, um, going to the supermarket and spending hundreds of dollars before, you know, batting an eyelid. Um, so that was like a big key element. But there wasn't this sense, like, you know, the baseball bats were out for the government on it. It wasn't like this is all, you know, Anthony Albanese's fault. There were some people that did say that, but there wasn't that sort of anger that I felt in Aston, for example, yeah. or even at the 2022 federal election, that anger that was around for Scott Morrison and, and Josh Frydenberg. I didn't have that there. So I don't know if that's the tax cut changes maybe working in Anthony Albanese's favour or maybe people going, you know, this is these are global factors involved in cost of living. You can't really pinpoint it on on one government. Yeah, and I imagine those changes to stage three, I mean, that's presumably going to benefit the majority of people living in that electorate. Those, you know, tends to be more working class, but also people who, you know, heavily mortgaged area as well. Yeah, so according to Labor, they're saying that 87% of people working in Dunkley will be better off under their changes. Mm. Um, the coalition, people that don't know, they're supporting the changes, but they've kind of painted 
um, Anthony Albanese as a liar because he committed not to, to change them. Um, so there were a couple of people that came up to me and were like, you know, he's a liar, you can't trust him. So that is working. Um, but for a lot of people, it, it, it does appear that that gamble of Labor's has paid off because they were, you know, talking about this issue but not sort of saying, oh, you know, the government's not doing enough. They have kind of offered something um, to people in the area. Yeah, and I understand Peter Murphy increased the margin at the last election. I think it's held by Labor by around about sort of 6% or so. Do you have much of a sense of the role of personality in this, that the Liberal candidate is the mayor of Frankston? I mean, would that play a role at all in terms of whether people are you know, familiar with him and might be inclined to, to vote Liberal this time around? Yeah, he's definitely got a, a bigger profile than Labor's candidate, that's for sure, because he has been mayor there. He's came in as, um, I think he was elected in 2020 and then three terms in a row as mayor. Um, so he has got a profile. Um, but for some people, that's actually, you know, a, a negative. Mm. Um, he has been involved in this new kind of redevelopment plan of Frankston, which is kind of encouraging, you know, some higher-density apartments, um into the city to try and reinvigorate it and get more housing in. Is that some um, of the stuff on, on the foreshore down there that's been pretty controversial yeah. as well? Yeah. So um, you asked me about core flutes and signs and mm. stuff. I've actually seen more signs against that development. They're calling it the Great Wall of Frankston right. um, than, than for the candidates themselves. So some people might know him and might not actually like him um, because of his involvement in that plan, um, whereas others kind of want a fresh start for Frankston. It, it is, you know, one of the things I did find was it is looking quite tired and, like, there's a lot of vacancies, like that main shopping strip and then walking in towards Bayside Shopping Centre. Like, there is a lot of vacancies. So he reckons he's kind of the build-it-and-people-will-come mentality. So if that's right, like, that could be a, a great thing for the neighbourhood. So it's really, yeah, it's quite a mixed bag. Yeah, I'm speaking with Guardian Australia's Victorian State Correspondent Benita Kolovos all about uh, the upcoming by-election in Frankston. It's uh, in Dunkley, I should say. It's happening this coming Saturday. And, uh, I mean, this is an area that was held by Liberal MP Bruce Bilson for, I think, around 20 years before flipping to Labor. And at the state level, it's been a Labor stronghold for some time. Do you think it, it you know, in terms of the major parties, is, is it more difficult for Labor to hold on to this one or... or do you have the sense that they're a little bit sort of on the nose down there? I didn't get the on the nose feeling, but that might be because I had a very small sample size. Mm. Uh, very small. I can't tell you how many people, and maybe this is saying something about state of, of media and news at the moment, that just did not want to talk to a journalist. Right. Okay. Um, there's a lot of distrust. Um, a bit of like conspiracy stuff kind of filtering through as well. So I thought that was quite interesting. Um, but, yeah, you did mention that Labor hold the seat at a state level. They've held it there since 2014. And the, the local MP at a state level, he likes to say, you know, we've invested millions into this area. So that's obviously why people keep voting for him. But he thinks that's rubbed off as well, federally. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of a positive association with that party. Peter Murphy was, a, you know, Anyone I spoke to, whether they were voting for the Liberal Party or for Labor, everyone there was speaking so highly of her as a you know community representative. She went to every single event that was happening in town. Um, so I think 
her increasing her margin there. So it was, I think, 2.7% in 2019 and then boosting it up to 6.3. You could absolutely put that down to her and her personality. Um, but it does. The seat goes to and fro, Liberal, Labor, all the time. Yeah. Um, the average swing at a by-election is about 4% away from the government. So based on that, they could hang on to it. Um, but, yeah, it's it's interesting. One week they're saying that the Liberals, you know, Liberal insiders are saying we're gonna we're gonna win it. Another week they're like, oh no, nah, I think it's gonna hang on to Labor. But um, interesting in this final week to see if that shifts again. Absolutely. Do you have the sense that the Victorian government or opposition are going to be watching this really closely as well, and maybe see it as a bit of a, a test of, of their fortunes? Oh, it's a good question. Um, I'm not too sure. Obviously, it talks to, like, the strategy federally. Peter Dutton's been talking a lot about how the party has to look to the outer suburbs for its future. Mm. He says they shouldn't rely on those inner-city seats like, you know, Kuyong and Higgins anymore um, to secure leadership of the country, I guess. Um, At a state level, I think the Liberals need more than 18 seats to form government. So they don't have kind of the luxury of picking and choosing which parts of Victoria um, to kind of target. They need everyone in Victoria to support them to win. Um, You know, whereas Peter Dutton kind of can afford to sacrifice a few seats in a state like Victoria for seats in Queensland or for seats in WA. So I don't think that the Liberals, if they're looking at this and going, okay, maybe this is our pathway, and if they are successful and the Liberals win this seat federally, I would caution the state Liberals from kind of going down the same route because it's a state. Um, You can't really um, pick and choose when you're coming from that far behind. yeah, I, I just don't see how that would work at a state level. That's right. I mean, I've got a bit of time to, to think about that, I suppose, but a lot more would, would need to go right, as you say, for them to, to return to government in Victoria. Just just lastly, I mean, the major news in this state at the moment is the bushfires out um, to the west of Melbourne. Is that going to be something you're sort of looking at through The Guardian in the coming days, especially with, I guess, a really hot day um, forecast for Wednesday? Yeah, absolutely. So they've got hot temperatures forecast on Wednesday and the government are kind of predicting... Um, it's going to be a, a grave date of grave concern um, to authorities. Um, we don't have a lot of information yet. I think it's usually the day before um, the increased fire danger day that they'll hold a press conference and we'll get a bit more of an understanding of what that's going to look like. So tomorrow, Arva, we'll definitely have a lot more information. But we've got the, the fire near Ballarat that's still burning. Um, it's already destroyed six homes. I think there's going to be a lot of... Um, you know, efforts to try and get that completely, I think it is contained now, but under control or even, you know, mostly extinguished before that Wednesday. Otherwise, we might see those sort of evacuation orders um, pop back up again. So definitely one to keep an eye on. Yeah, let's hope for everyone who, who lives and spends time out there that it doesn't escalate too drastically. Always great to have you on Triple R, Benita. For the first time this year, I've got to say as well, I've only just sort of yeah. um, kicked off broadcasting again as of last week. So, uh, yeah, great to have you as part of the show. I wish you a happy new year, but we're not allowed to do that this month. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it anyway. Happy new year. <laughs> All right, thanks, Benita. Have a good Cheers. Bye. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7.
Long Hot Summer is a series of music, DJ and food experiences down in Lawn. It runs for a month and is a great reason to head down the coast if you're not lucky enough to live there. Leah Senior is one of those on the lineup. We've just been hearing uh, the title track from Leah's album from last year, The Music That I Make. Leah's uh, seeing out the uh, festival of sorts, I suppose it is, on March the 10th with a show at Lawn Theatre playing alongside Japanese kraut rockers Manami Deutsch. And I'm very happy to have Leah now on the line. Hello, how are you going? Hey, Dylan. I'm good. And so this is a, a kind of a, a local gig for you, I guess. Yeah, yep. Nice. Based down um a bit down the Great Ocean Road these days. Yeah, I'm in Anglesey, so yeah, it's a nice drive down to Lawn. Very envious. <laughs> mm. Um, tell us about the Lawn Theatre. Um, I well, I think it's just had a big re, like it's not usually used for gigs, but I think they've just kind of um opened it up for shows, and I think they've kind of redone all the front bar as well maybe yeah but uh, honestly i'm probably not the person to ask i can be a bit of a hermit down here (laughs) um i I teach like literally just up the road from the lawn theater it's a beautiful building um but yeah i haven't i haven't been in to see any music gigs yet so i'm excited to um yeah see what it's like yeah, well, that's the nice thing about festivals like this, I suppose, that, you know, you might see venues opened up for music that maybe haven't had a, a lot of stuff there in the past. And just looking at photos of it, I mean, I think it's like 90 years old. It looks like a beautiful um, building and, and a really nice one to see music in. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be cool. Have you managed to get along to any other long, hot summer things that have been happening over the past few weeks? Oh, no, I haven't yet. Um, yeah, I plan on. I plan on heading down. Getting amongst it, yeah. Um, and so you uh, teach just behind the, the lawn theatre as well as the music that you put out yourself. You teach music as well. How does that sort of interact with your creative output? Um, yeah, I, I guess when I teach, I like, to, um, I like to encourage that stuff in the kids and it's always, um, it's always inspiring to see what, Seeing what the students come up with. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you reckon you'll get a few of them at your show? <laughs> um, yeah, maybe. Not sure. Not sure if they're old enough. Right, okay. <laughs> Over um, 18s, maybe. Yeah, yeah. It's mostly like preppies to year 10. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, I mean, your album came out last year. Congratulations. It's, you know, another great one from you. Do you tend to sort of listen to your releases once they're out in the world or kind of put them to bed? No way. <laughs> no? <laughs> no. I, I, there's no way I can do that. Um, I don't think I've ever been able to listen to an album after having released it. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. I think it's, I don't know, I think I just like to move on <laughs> and focus on the next thing. Yeah. yeah. And it's, I mean, this album that you put out last year, it's, uh, you know, it's a triple R album of the week. It's had some really lovely reviews. I mean, do those uh, accolades sort of matter to you or is music more of a something that comes from, I, I guess, personal motivation and personal expression? Um, I guess primarily it's the latter. Um, but, you know, we're, we're all, we're all just people and, and, of course, you know, it's nice to to f- hear when your music resonates and, um, yeah, but I think that the, 
the, the thing that keeps me doing it is mostly just the sitting, you know, sitting down in a room and playing and the, the fun of trying to come up with stuff. Yeah. Tell us about your creative process. You, you know, you're based down the coast these days. Do you find it is a, a, a sort of environment that's conducive to writing? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't quite know how it spills in. I guess. It, I guess your environment always does. Um, I like it. I like having a lot of time to myself and having, you know, peace and quiet generally. Um, in the early mornings, I'm like um, a pretty diligent. Like I, I have. I like routines with creativity and. Um, I like just sitting down and going, okay, well, for for an hour I'm going to just mess around and see what happens. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I am. Um, yeah, I have a I have a real process nowadays. I feel um, more than more than I used to. And do you kind of launch straight into that after putting out an album and you know not listening to it? <laughs> I mean, are you busy working on the next thing at the moment? Yeah, I'm always I'm always working on songwriting. Um, yeah, definitely, it's it's the best part. Um, I feel like when I'm like last year putting out the album, that's probably the worst part for me. I find it frustrating because it um, you have to spend time online and you have to sort of engage with all the bullshit and <laughs> it takes away from writing. So I'm really happy when I can kind of get back to like the the writing and recording and you know the, the exciting the really exciting part yeah and i mean your music has a really sort of intimate personal quality to it but um i mean the instrumentation and the band that you work with really sort of bring it to life as well how do you go sort of working with with band members i mean do you kind of share ideas as you're forming them or is it much more like i've got a set of songs we're going to record them let's sort of you know bang these into shape and get them right um, yeah, no, I've, the, the people I play with, all of the musicians I play with are amazing and I've, I've, you know, they're long-term, um, friends and people I've, I've created with for, um, for many years. Um, so it is probably more and more, it's like collaborative and I'll, I'll write, I'll write the song, but then, um, I'll bring it to the band and. You know, everyone will offer their own parts. It's not like I'm like, the bass is going to do this, the drum. You know, it's a very collaborative process in that. And I feel like it's um, the music The music that I tend to record isn't overly produced. It's mostly just, you know, um, we'll play in a room together as a band and then Jesse and I will kind of work together to come up with maybe extra little melodic ideas or, um, you know, sprinkles. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty much just a band in a room. Yeah. And are you recording at the moment yet or still sort yeah, of taking a breath yeah. after the, the album? No, I'm recording. Um, yeah, we got, like, we've, I just always record at home with Jesse. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it's good. We're, all, we're always kind of never stop. Um, just, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it, you know, it sounds like you know, referring to being a bit of a hermit down the coast and that kind of thing, and doing a lot of, a lot of writing. You're really happy in that place, but you're about to head off on a little bit of a tour supporting Wilco as well. How do you go being on the road? Um, yeah, I think 
I think it's it's fun to have both. Um, like it's really nice being down here. It's always really nice coming home and and you know being somewhere that's really peaceful. Um, it's such a big contrast. But that said, like it, you know, it's it's good to get out of the house and <laughs> it'll be it'll be fun to. Um, yeah, I, I'm really excited. I mean, particularly particularly about that tour because it's it's just such a special one to be a part of and you know we've we've been Wilco fans for a long time so yeah mostly just super super excited um yeah to play those shows yeah excellent and i mean this show coming up as part of long hot summer you're you're playing um with manami deutsch the japanese kraut rock band who are really great but pretty different to you do you like being on on lineups where there's a, a bit of a I suppose, um, you know, a mix of genres and, and approaches and that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, I do. I um, I guess I've always been sort of a little bit used to that, having, you know, put out my first three albums on Flightless, and yeah. I feel like I don't really know any different. Um, but I, I like that. I like... Um, you know, I I like I like lots of different kinds of music, and it's nice to not be pigeonholed into just having to play folk shows or yeah yeah yeah. And it's great as a punter as well, getting to go to gigs and seeing some stuff that is a little bit different as well. I always yeah really enjoy that. Um, yeah, me and- too. Yeah, and uh, I mean, in terms of, of the set list, are you playing a lot of the songs from the recent album, or have you got some new ones that you're sort of starting to throw in the mix as well? Oh uh, yeah, um, yeah, I'm excited to play new stuff. Um, probably, probably a mix. Like, I'll, yeah, I'll keep playing some of the music that I make songs, but try and incorporate more and more new stuff as it happens. And um, got some just like I don't know, back catalogy stuff, unreleased stuff that I'll probably try and play and, yeah, mix it up. Fantastic. Keep it interesting. Yeah, well, it's sure to be a great show down there. I love that there's, um, you know, extra reason to head down to the Great Ocean Road. Um, and I think I'm going to head down there as well to, to soak some of it up over the coming weeks. So, um, yeah, mm. enjoy. I hope you get a good crowd down there on March the 10th oh. and, and have a great show. And all the best for the tour with Wilco as well. And you do have one other show actually in Melbourne coming up in, in a couple of months. Yeah, uh, we've got um, just uh, like a headline show at the Brunswick Ballroom on the 24th of April, and that'll be with the whole band. The Wilco shows and the Manami Deutsch um, shows are just um, stripped back. So that's the only full band show we've got coming up with the Western Australia band, the Burrs Band, um, and Winter McQuinn, who's just releasing a solo solo-y type project with his buddies so it should be really fun yeah yeah and do you have any plans for releasing new stuff it feels unfair to ask given that you know your album's not that old (laughs) but if you're you're already recording um is there more to come this year yeah i don't like to put in too much pressure on myself because i feel like things always take time and change and morph into things so i'm not I'm not going to put a timeline on it at the moment. I'm just happy to, you know, keep keep chipping away. Yeah, sounds like a plan. Well, um, all the best with all that stuff coming up. And, um, yeah, listeners can head along Thank to you, see Leah. Leah Senior playing alongside Manami Deutsch on March the 10th as part of Long Hot Summer down at the Lawn Theatre. All the best and hope to chat again soon. Thanks, Dylan. Thanks for having me.
Thanks for listening to this podcast version of Future Perfect on Triple R. If you want to get in touch, hit up futureperfectrrr at gmail.com or contact the station via the Triple R website. <laughs>